the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, but I do need to apologize. That, that bumper lied to you. Brian is not here. He's actually in sunny Florida sending me photos right now, actually, of him sitting at a pool. So uh, let's not feel bad for him. But I am very, very excited to have in the studio my friend Hannah Gronowski. She is our, I think, quickest return guest of all time. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I want a trophy that says that on it. It's being engraved as we speak. Perfect. Good. Good. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted, so you can listen to all the previous shows. And uh, I've been told that my friends sometimes listen to it at twice the speed, which I am nervous <laughs> to think about my voice at twice the speed. That gives me a lot of anxiety. But uh, we really, really love Hannah at this show because uh, I, I think not only are you incredibly passionate about what you do, but you bring other people with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, just by way of reminder, Hannah not only started, um, uh, she's the CEO and founder of Generation Distinct. She's also a part of a women's speaker collective. And let me give you just some information about her, how you can reach her, and we're going to dive into this conversation together. You can find her at hannahgranowski.com. You can learn more about Generation Distinct at generationdistinct.com or the womenspeakercollective.com. Uh, like you didn't have enough dot coms. <laughs> I know. You almost collect websites at this point. Yeah. Like I I love that about I'm just looking for new ones. But the way that you're wired though, like <laughs> sees that as like, yeah, this is mm-hmm. all connected. Yeah. And I think that's part yeah. of what makes you like such a compelling leader mm-hmm. is that you you don't have this sort of like one dimensional one track. It's sort sure. of like, no, there's so many you're a diverse person that has different passions and yeah. wirings. Yeah. And so I, I would love we talked a lot about like the mechanics of Generation Distinct yes. last time you were here. But could you just Tell us some of the story now. Yeah. Like, how, how did it start? Yeah. What was it like when you started? What's it like being a, a young leader mm-hmm. in, in a culture where sometimes young leadership isn't always celebrated necessarily? Just paint for us that picture. Yes. I always think it's funny when people see what Generation Distinct is today because, huh. you know, if you look at our website, it, it looks pretty good. You know, it, if you look at our really social good. media, really does. we have a great creative director that, that does all of that and... Um, and, and yet what I really want to tell people is, well, <laughs> you should see what it looked like when we started. You should see what it really all looked like. See, that surprises began. me so much, though, because of how good it all looks now. <laughs> good. I'm glad. I mean, that's because we have an amazing creative director. When it was me, I mean, it was literally me scouring Pinterest for, like, those really <laughs> cheesy quotes and putting them on social media, like, bad. That's real? So, that's true? Oh, that's real. If like you scroll back far enough. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was super cool. It was super cool. Um, but yeah, so Generation Distinct, I think is pretty unique because it started before we were ready to start it. Oh yeah. 
And I think oftentimes, especially as young leaders, we get so caught up in the planning phase that we never Mm. actually just do the thing. Mm. And for better or for worse, we really started Generation Distinct before we were ready or qualified. I love that. And we really, at this at this point, um, when it started, it was just three 20-year-olds who had this grand vision. You were actually 20? I was really 20. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we would just dream together and, and get together in coffee shops and plan of what this could look like. Mm. And we had this idea for this tool that we thought was a really good idea. We thought, man, we know that our generation wants to live a life that matters. They just don't know how. And so let's create something that helps them Hmm. actually get started. Yeah. And so it was this 52-week video series. We had a different challenge every single week. You probably remember this, Ian. I do. And we literally had fifth. I mean, we we weren't even started yet. And we decided (laughs) we're going to film 52 (laughs) different videos. And you were like driving to people to do them, right? Oh, yeah. come to you. All over the place. And 52 different volunteers, 52 different scripts that I wrote, challenges, organizations we partnered with. I mean, it was crazy. Like, we all had other things we were doing. This was just the start. So really, the best way to capture what it was like when it started was this first video shoot. You know, we were so excited. Us three 20-year-olds were like, we're going to change the entire <laughs> right. world. Totally. And with so, this one video. With this one <laughs> right. video. Yes. Yeah. So we um, we scheduled this day in between, like, Christmas and New Year's when we were going to have, like, 25 of the volunteers come and shoot them all in one day. Oh, wow. And then the rest of the year was us just driving all around the known world trying to get people <laughs> to do this with right, us. Right. But that first day, we were so excited. Hmm. Well, we didn't have a building. We, we had no idea where right. to film these. And so um, we had a friend whose dad owned this, like, abandoned warehouse. Oh, wow. And so we're like, well, obviously, that's a great idea. <laughs> like, <Perfect>. it's free. <laughs> and that was really the only qualification right. we were looking for. That was our price tag. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so we showed up in the, in the uh, like, the end of December 2016, and it's a complete snowstorm outside. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, ev- the wind is howling, right. and we're trying to load up, like, out of our cars this uh, crappy equipment that we have of like you know camera and like yeah. some pallets to make the video look cool Ooh. you know we like wrap christmas lights around the pallets Obviously. super fancy and so we get in this warehouse and it's freezing cold because oh, it's gosh. the middle of december right and and i look at my friend i'm like okay so when is the heat turning on and she's like, yeah, no, like this is an abandoned warehouse. Like heat's not coming. Right. Emphasis you know? on abandoned. Right? Abandoned. In fact, I don't know if you remember these, but do you remember what Monkey Joe's was? Oh, yeah. So this was an abandoned Monkey Joe's. which no was way. like this little amusement park. So literally we're walking through and there's like abandoned like monkeys no, 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 and no, like no. giraffes nope. and like this moped in the corner. There's like broken glass all no over the kidding. place. Like what happened in here? I have no idea. That's but that's so where we were. Oh, it was the most shady. The most shady. Um so literally we we have you know no you know no expectation that our friends are actually gonna show up for this right, video shoot right. because it's like a a full on snowstorm. But it was actually this really cool moment. You know, we're finding crates to stack our cameras on because yeah. we literally don't even have a tripod. Like that's how scrappy <laughs> uh, we are. But then the the moment when our friends start getting there mm. and they they trek through the snow and they trek through the you know the conditions because they knew mm. they were joining us for a dream that was larger than ourselves. That's awesome. And it was just this picture of um, you know when we get started, we don't have to have it all together. Mm. We don't have to 
um, have all the right equipment. Right. You don't have to have a business plan that tells us our projections and our financials. That's right. We can just say yes and take steps. And in the moment, it was hard. But because we were doing it with this community, with this team, totally, totally. we laughed. Right. We enjoyed it. We knew we were a part of something that was beginning. And, and so – yeah, we started scrappy, but I actually think that's always been our edge mm. is that we always are willing to be a little bit scrappy mm. to do things a little bit before we're ready. Yep. And we've seen great return on that. And do you feel like that's a culture that has continued since then? Because Absolutely. sometimes the difficulty is, yeah, we started scrappy, yes. but now we're established and we got a killer Squarespace website, yeah. <laughs> $19 a year exactly. or whatever, you know, like yep. you're able to maintain that scrappiness. Yeah. And yeah. I, that to me, I think is the real, that's the magic, I think, of what you do is mm-hmm. that there is this this palpable excitement, like, oh, man, something's happening yeah. here that's different than what I'm experiencing elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Can yeah. you stick around a little bit? I can, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. That's the voice of Hannah Gronowski, CEO and founder of Generation Distinct. Coming up next, we're going to learn a little bit more about how you keep it scrappy mm-hmm. and how to live a life that matters and maybe how to get unstuck when you're feeling stuck. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is gone. We don't know where he is. If you've seen him, let us know. He's been missing for a couple of days now. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But we are joined in the studio right now in person by Hannah Gronowski, CEO and founder of Generation Distinct. And she was telling us some of the origin stories. I love the origin stories because so often, you know, when you look at organizations that have sort of, you know, arrived or are stepping into their own Mm. It's easy to forget the abandoned warehouse stories. <laughs> and for anyone listening who's like, oh, I have a dream. Yeah. I have something I want to start. Yeah. I think so often we we look to the ones who are already successful. You're like, oh, I could never be that. Right. And we fail to, to recognize like, oh, there's a lot of right. stuff beneath the iceberg there that yes. that usually doesn't make the papers or make the, you know, mm-hmm. but that's like the grit of it. Right. And what, I, what I'm really curious about is it feels like a lot of innovation happens in the scrappy spaces. Yep. But part of the issue with churches and organizations is that sometimes once they become, quote unquote, established, yes. you lose sort of that scrappiness because now it's about maintenance. Now right. it's about like or growth. And none of those things are bad. Right. But like how, how are you able to kind of maintain some of that that edge, that scrappiness as an organization? How do you how do you lead that well? Yes, I think organizationally and life, we all get to these points in our life when we're stuck. Yeah, right. Yeah. We get in this stuck space. Totally. And we do a ton of work at Generation Distinct about how do you get out of your stuck space. Mm. So that has to start for us as an organization. One of our staff values is evaluate everything mm. because we just want to say, hey, we never want to become content. And mm. again, I think that's one of our, our competitive advantages as being young leaders. I mean, yeah. everyone on our staff are in their 20s or early 30s. Wow. And so we're constantly hungry for change anyway. Totally. And so we're always evaluating. A lot of our staff meetings will start with us saying, is there anything that we need to evaluate and we need to change. And wow. let's just be honest with what is working and what's not working. Um, but that also happens in life where we get to this point and we say, we had this grand vision for our life yeah. or we had these dreams and they're not happening. Right. Why is there this gap? Totally. How do I get past this stuck space? Totally. And um, before we go any further in this conversation, I think there's something that you just need to know about me as Hannah Gronowski. It's like really important. <laughs> Tell us. I can't wait. So this very important piece of information is that I 
I honestly, in my most authentic self, believe that I was born to be a surfer. Oh, really? Like, truly. This is, you know how some, you know, preachers, pastors, speakers will be like, they'll tell a story and then you ask their friends. They're like, yeah, that wasn't really true. Uh, I know. It breaks my heart every time. Every time. But that's truly, like, honest about me. You can ask my friends, my family. Hannah really believes she was born to be a surfer. I, like, have the plaques about being a surfer, like, in my house. Like, I have t-shirts about being a surfer. Have you surfed? I've surfed one time in my life. You- <laughs> I have. When I was like 19, I, I was in Mexico and I did surf. It Got was it. great. It was right. so hard. I right. sucked at it, <laughs> but I did it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but there's really this part of me that just believes at one point I'll like wake up and be this amazing surfer. Right. Right. And um, I- I'll like tell people I, I surf. You know what I'm saying? Like, honestly. Yeah, yeah I surf. Like, yeah, I'm totally occasion. in that. Yeah, I'm like one of them. <laughs> Like, to the point, this is weird. This is just my extrovert Hannah self, though, too. If I see surfers at the beach while I'm traveling, I will literally walk up to them and, like, have these conversations. Like, I'm one of them. Like, I'm part of their crew. I'm like, yeah, that wave was amazing. You know, like, I have no idea. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) And and so, in my mind, I can think I'm a surfer. But Mm. what I think is interesting is that if you were to actually examine my life, Mm. You would find very little evidence of that actually being true. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you looked in my garage, you wouldn't find a surfboard. Right. right. <laughs> if you looked in my schedule, you wouldn't find any proof that I actually go surfing. Right. If you looked at my bank account, you would find no proof that I invest any of my resources into surfing. Mm. So I think a lot of us, we end up in this stuck space between a vision of ourselves that we believe we are mm. and who we actually are because um, – we're pretending like we already are that person. Right. So so we can say that we care about solving a world hunger. Right. Totally. But if we're not actually doing anything, we don't care. Yeah. Right. Right. We can pretend like we care about the empowerment of women in this world. But if we're not actively a part of it, we're not actually caring. Right. right. And so when I um, have young leaders come up to me and say, I want to be this person. I want to take action on my passions. I want to do something. Where do I start? Mm. The first thing I always say is, hey, just do something. Mm. And and it doesn't have to be that one thing that lines up with your passion even. Just do something right, that right. creates impact and ripples in this world. Mm. So that could literally be having a conversation with a homeless person totally. and asking them questions. Right. I mean, that could literally be signing up to volunteer at the nonprofit in your community. That could literally be start beginning to write every day mm. for one week because you know you have a passion to communicate. And mm. Whatever it is, so often we, we stay in that sp- stuck space because we're waiting for the big grand step. Right, right, right. But if we're not taking those little steps, we're never going to get to the point of taking the big step. So I always say, just do totally. something, walk across the street, enter into that injustice, ask questions, read the book, attend the conference, send the email, you know, whatever it is, mm. take that step. I wonder if that's what led people like one of my favorite mother Teresa quotes of all time. She says something like we can do no great things, just small things with great love. Yeah. Here's so a woman good. who's like a punchline of holiness right. and global impact. Right. And here she is toward the end of her life saying, now there are no great things. Yeah. Just small, yeah. just small things with great love. I, yeah. I think I wonder if what are, I wonder if that is the wisdom of the rear view of like mm. ah, I kept waiting, and I imagine maybe she felt that same temptation. Like right. I want to, I want to, I want to cure everyone in Calcutta yep. together in one day. Let's do it. Like exactly. it, we're almost predisposed to love the rally events, the right. huge gatherings. There's yes. something in our brain that like it's almost addictive. Like oh, the yes. one, and I don't think any of those things are evil by any stretch. Sure. But I think you're right. I think you're spot on. 
And for anyone who's, who's listening to struggle to put one foot in front of the next, yeah. like what encouragement would you give? Because I, I think a lot of times people, you're, you're totally right. We look for the grand and the dramatic. Right. And I think of like, even like Elijah, right? The, right. The God wasn't in this fire, or this wind, yep. the like really earth shattering stuff. He was present in the still small voice, yeah. right? That's the Hebrew word is literally the sound of sheer silence. Yes. Like how do we hone in? How do we pay better attention to the small decisions in our mm-hmm. life that actually lead to, to great impact over the course, you know, I think Peterson calls it long obedience in the same direction, yes. right? Like this, yes. that's a long game mentality that I think a lot of people, particularly young leaders struggle yes. to embrace. How do you, how do you teach people to see it? How do you teach them to actually execute it? What are there, are there ways you can coach people to do that better? So good. Young leaders specifically, I think more than ever, have really clear vision for their future. Hmm. I think so many young leaders are futuristic. They're visionaries. And that's amazing. We need that. But I was listening to a pastor recently who said everything he does, he considers it to be the big thing. Hmm. That he's not waiting for the big moment that's coming what he's doing every single day is the big thing. Mm. And that can be really tempting for me as a young leader. I mean, I'm 23 years old. We're three and a half years into this organization. And so I can think about the day when we're 10 years in, Mm. I can think about the day um, that we're, you know, employing hundreds of people. Right. I can dream about the day when thousands of people have gone through our curriculum. But that actually does not serve to make me better as a leader. Right, right. What will make me better as a leader is saying, man, this stuff I'm working on today is the big thing. That's good. And if I can bring my very best to this, totally. then I'll be better qualified to bring my best to the future. Totally. It, it sort of brings new meaning to what Jesus, I think, said was if you're trusted <laughs> in the small things, That's right. then you'll be trusted in the big things. Exactly. Right? If you're not being faithful with the resources and that's not just money either resources right. is time yeah. the talents that you have yeah. i think often we assume like once i land this huge job right. or get this big opportunity or i'm making this large sum of money right. then i'll start being responsible with it then i'll start being generous with it like if you're not being that way right now with whatever you have exactly why would god entrust us with bigger platforms and bigger opportunities and i think exactly you hit the nail on the head how can we be faithful to see whatever it is that's right in front of us yep as the big thing i yeah. love that i think yeah. that's so important well, coming up next, I want to talk to Hannah a little specifically about uh, being a woman in leadership, because uh, as I think many of you are aware, sometimes that brings with it unique obstacles, unique challenges, and probably also unique opportunities. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk to Hannah of Generation Distinct coming up next here on The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is in Germany, I think, <laughs> or Florida, one of the two. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But I have a very special guest host today. Hannah Gronowski is the founder and CEO of Generation Distinct, a nonprofit that exists to empower young adults to discover the wrong they were born to make right. I, I love that vision, mm-hmm. by the way. And just to reiterate... In case anyone's joining us, you can learn more about her at hannahgranowski.com or generationdistinct.com. And we've been talking about the origins of this organization. You're 23, <laughs> so it maybe feels like, man, we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. But by most metrics, people are like, holy cow, like at 23, I can't even remember what I was doing at 23. <laughs> it wasn't starting an organization, though. Like, yeah. you've, you've accomplished so much, mm-hmm. but I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't only love what it is right now. I love 
where it's come mm-hmm. from. And you had yeah. mentioned some of the scrappiness and even just your coaching on what do we, how do we get unstuck and how yeah. do we do, you know, like the writer of Psalm says, the next right thing. Yep. Like yep. We often get so obsessed with the big and the grand, like how, right. how are we obedient to the next right thing? And one of the things that I'm, I'm really fascinated to talk to you about is um, what has it been like for you as, mm-hmm. as a woman entrepreneur, as a yeah. woman leader? I know that you also speak. So mm-hmm. you, you not only have this like vision component, mm-hmm. but you're also legitimately just a fantastic communicator. Thanks. And I know um, as best as I can know that as a white straight man, mm-hmm. our worlds in so many, so many aspects are, are just different. Can you, yeah. can you talk to me a little bit about, um, what's it like being a woman in leadership? What are mm-hmm. some obstacles that you face? What are yeah. some challenges or encouragements that you can give to, yes. to anyone who's listening that's maybe interested in this, this conversation? Yes. I think oftentimes we can approach a conversation like this with anger hmm. or with bitterness or with um, hate towards the person who has made it that way. Hmm. But I actually take a really different approach. Hmm. And when I look at my journey as a woman who is a leader of an organization, right. who is a who preaches, who writes, yep. I realize I'm only where I am because there have been so many women and men hmm. Who have gone before me to get us to where we are today? Totally, totally. So we've we've come so far, honestly, hmm. um, and we have so much farther to go. Yeah, yes. I was um, at an event in Arizona in February, and, and one of the things I do is I'm a part of this vision called the Women Speakers Collective. Danielle mm-hmm. Strickland, Autumn Katz, and I lead this awesome. this um, this movement really, where we're traveling around the globe to empower the voice of women. Hmm. Um, So we've done an event in California. We were in Arizona. We're going to Toronto, Chicago, London, Lebanon, New York. I mean, we're going all over hosting these events and just really trying to empower women to believe that they can have a voice, um, that they can be called to preach the gospel. Yeah, right. So anyway, I was at this event in uh, February in Arizona. We had a guest speaker come in, a friend of mine, Steve Carter. Mm Mm-hmm. And we asked him as a great communicator and what he would want to tell to a room full of women who feel called to preach the gospel Hmm. from stages. Wow. And he looked out at the room and he said two things. First of all, I'm sorry. Hmm. And he said, if you would have told me, you know, 15 years ago that we'd be still having this conversation. Yeah, right. He wouldn't have believed it. Wow. But he said, number two, I'm hopeful hmm. because when I look out at this room, I see women who are taking the baton and going to carry it farther right. and who amidst the op- opposition, amidst hmm. the conversations around theology and context and all of that, that we're choosing to get up on a stage yeah. and use the voice that we believe God has given us. Totally. And so I think when I talk to people and they say, how do we fix this? How do we make this better? Hmm. I don't think the answer is to shout louder. Hmm. I don't think the answer is to tell people why they're wrong. I think the answer is for, for, um, is, is twofold for, for women. Yeah. I think it's simply to just do the work. Hmm. I think sometimes we spend so much of our energy trying to convince, trying to convince, trying to convince when we just get up on stages and we do excellent job 
of preaching the gospel, yeah. when we point people to Jesus, when we just start leading, mm. then we're just doing the work yeah. instead of trying to prove why we can do the work. Right, right, so right. really back to the whole idea of just do something. Right. Let's just do the work. Mm. And as people are watching us do it, people are saying, man, God has called her and equipped her and anointed her. Mm. And I cannot help but empower her to keep doing it. Yeah, right. And then I think, um, Ian, you do such a beautiful job of this as oh, a man thanks. saying, hey, I, I actually believe that the voice of a woman is so important that even if it means I vacate places, mm. that, that I make room, that I have to say no to an opportunity for a woman to have an opportunity, mm. I think that is a visual of the church and Jesus and their relationship. I mean, Jesus calls the church his bride right. because he continually gave himself up, mm. right? And so I think... Um, the most beautiful pictures of, of women and men in leadership together is when women are not angry and bitter and hateful, but they're just doing great work. Mm. And then men are coming alongside of them, empowering, saying, yeah, we want to create room for you to do right, this. Right, right. Okay, so you mentioned Stephen Carter is hopeful. Mm. Are, are you? I am. You are? Yeah. When I look around at my generation of women, um, I, I just, I think for a long time, this conversation has been off limits in so many places. And I think we've failed to recognize that when we see oppression of, of women mm. in a large scale, and we're, we're, we're becoming really aware of that in, right. this, yes. in this climate, that, we ha- that we're finally starting to acknowledge that the oppression is not starting at that, at that high-level scale. Mm. It, it's starting in these little messages that are all over our culture. Right. That women are less than. It's systemic. It's right. so systemic. And I, I, I feel so much hope mm. in, in looking out and seeing we're having these conversations. Yes. Yes. We are beginning to address the fact that if we want to see um, women um, empowered in all areas, we also have to see women empowered in the small areas. Mm. We're starting to call out the little um, abuses of power. Right. We're starting to address the, the little instances when women are um, disempowered. Right. And so I feel so much hope. And I think we're raising a generation of women hmm. that are being told that they can lead, that they can speak, that yeah. they can influence the right. world. Okay. So what do you do then uh, if you are are trying to lead in that way yeah. and you're just, you're met with opposition, just feels like you're hitting a brick wall. Yeah. Like what encouragement would you give to women who are like, that's what I'm trying to do. Right. And it just feels like closed door after closed door after closed door. Yeah. How do you, one, what encouragement would you give them? And two, how do you still have the stamina to say, I'm going to, I'm going to keep getting up yeah. and, and finding a way forward? Well, I think first of all, women have to be honest with those things. Hmm. There's so much power when we share our struggles because yeah. then we realize, oh, this is not just me as a woman. This is all of us. Yeah. And so I think uh, one of the things I love about the Women Speakers Collective gatherings we have, these boot camps, is we start our events by standing in solidarity with each other. That's awesome. So we literally have this exercise. Danielle Strickland leads it, and, and we say, stand up if you've ever been told that you were not allowed to preach because of your gender. Mm. And nearly every woman stands up. No kidding. Uh, stand up if you've ever been told that your voice is too high to be willing to be listened to. Wow. Women stand up. Wow. And so over and over, we just stand up and, and it's solemn, but it's also incredibly hopeful because yeah. we look around and we say, oh, it's not just me. Right. So first of all, women, find opportunities to share your experiences and, and men choose to listen to those experiences right. and realize this is a normal thing for us totally. as women. Um, and then I think 
like anything that we see in our world, it's a progression mm. that change. We want it to be instant, but change is way more gradual than we than we like to believe. Right, right. So I think if we picture ourselves as a part of this grand movement of change, yeah. it's so much more empowering. So when I face opposition from someone telling me I shouldn't be using my voice, mm. I can either say this is so hard and unfair or I can say I am a part of of mm. a movement and together arms linked as women we are saying we're all going to take these steps totally. and as we do we're getting just a little bit closer totally. to what i think the kingdom of god is supposed to look like that's so good and you you just touched on it just there that that, that we're a part of something bigger yes and so when we come back i want to talk a little bit about that kind of not only where have we been where are yeah. we right now and where are we going and how how do we pass the baton well how do we build bridges not not just in terms of our denominational differences or theological differences, yep. but generational differences. Yes. And I think you, you have such keen insight on that conversation specifically. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that conversation coming up next on The Common Good at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. I do need to confess that everyone in the studio right now is dancing. Just cards everyone. on the table. You need to know that. Not that anyone cares. Uh, you can find <laughs> us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And my very special in-studio guest right now is Hannah Gronowski, CEO and founder of Generation Distinct. You can learn more at generationdistinct.com or hannahgronowski.com. And we've been talking about all sorts of things. Yeah. Getting into the weeds of your organization and how it started, the scrappiness of <laughs> like literally stacking pallets <laughs> to put a camera on in yep. a abandoned warehouse that had no heat in the dead of winter. Exactly. But we also talked about some of the struggles of not only being a young leader, a young mm-hmm. entrepreneur, but also a woman leader, and yeah. some of the things that like I don't honestly sometimes as a as a as a male as a as a male pastor mm-hmm. I'm totally blind to like mm-hmm. I'm really humbled and convicted by how how much it's necessary not only to create space but to also like close our mouths and yeah. listen yeah and uh, I think that's really really important and and you mentioned you alluded to this a couple of times this idea of how how do we pass the baton well yeah. which I so appreciate at 23 that you're already thinking about mm. legacy right yeah. and and not only where have we come from where are we right now but where are we going yes and how how do we build better bridges for for the purpose of unity right Jesus mm. seems to talk a lot about the significance of unity, yes. and it seems like more and more we're seeing schisms, and the chasm is widening. And That's right. so, how do how do we how do we engage with this conversation about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going better? Yes, yes. I think our world is pretty bad at it. Y- yeah, agreed. You know? <laughs> I mean, it feels like older generations blame younger generations for problems. Yeah. Younger generations hate the older generations for being so behind. Mm. I mean, it just seems like when we look out at this world. There's no unity around what we could build. Right, right. And um, this really clicked for me this um, uh, about a year ago now. I uh, I took a trip to Portland, Oregon, which cool. became quickly one of my favorite places. Yeah, it's just amazing. so unique. Uh, I loved it. I think their slogan is "Keep Portland Weird." Yeah, which, which like is how awesome. can you not love a city that has that <laughs> slogan? Totally. And has a coffee shop like every other store. Oh my gosh, you know, it's ridiculous. It's the best. Um, anyway, so I was out there. We were we were doing an interview for Generation Distinct out there. I dragged one of my friends along. We happened to be there over my birthday. Oh, awesome. And so my friend, uh, her name's Sarah, being the incredible person she is, planned this birthday day for me while we were out there. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And my um, 
you know, I, I, I dream of being a surfer. I mentioned that before. Right, I, right. I also have this deep love of rock climbing. So, like, every sport you can't do where I live <laughs> right, right. is the sports I love. I was going to say, Chicago's a good fit for you. Yeah, then. it's <laughs> awful. But it's fine. We're, we're, we're here. Um, but I, yeah, I love rock climbing. That's actually a sport I actually do. Oh, okay. Strangely enough. Ask, yeah. but okay. <laughs> Real life. <laughs> Got it. Um, no, but I love rock climbing. So she so she hired this private guide to take us out in the, like, the gorges of Oregon mm. all day long to rock climb. It was beautiful, like the moss and the waterfalls. And, mm. you know, we had this like mountainous, you know, mountain man guide taking us. Through. Uh, right. Of it course. was just like the most <laughs> amazing day. It was That's crazy. Awesome. And um, halfway through the day, we paused to just kind of like catch our breath and, yeah. you know, eat a snack and. And while we're sitting on this kind of like long, smooth gray rock, um, kind of drinking in the beauty around mm. us, it mm. was silent. And our guide all of a sudden kind of broke the silence by telling us the stories of climbers mm. who had kind of come before us to create these routes that we were climbing. Oh, wow. And he talked about how difficult this was. I mean, they would spend hours of their lives strapped in. Mm. You know, hammers in hand, pounding these bolts into the side of this rock face. Wow. And because they did, there was this path for us to take from where we were on the ground yep. to where we wanted to get at the top of the wall. That's awesome. And if they hadn't done that, I mean, we would have been left searching for a route. We would have been right. unsure of, of where to get to where we wanted to go. We would right. have had to recreate it all on our own. But that's not what we experienced because there was somebody who had come before us mm. to create the path that we were now enjoying. That's good. And in that moment, it really clicked for me that as we are living our lives today, mm. we are not living lives just for ourselves. Mm. We are living lives that are building paths for generations coming after us to take that's right that if we live distinct lives if we live lives that actually matter then the generations coming after us will better understand what it looks like to live a life that matters too and together we'll be actually moving towards building a better future but what that means is we have to first acknowledge there are people that have come before us Mm. millennials and gen z if you're listening like we did (laughs) not start this thing right like we are not to, to credit for yep. this world, for Christianity, for the church. We did not invent the church. Right, right. We are coming into a long line of people who have done the hard work. That's good. And also, we have to know it's our time to step into that as leaders. And we yep. have to say, let's let's keep building the path. Let's make it better. Totally. And then let's also say, hey, we know we're also not the end of this story. Yeah. So let's look behind us. Who's coming after us? And how can we build a better future for the generations to totally. come? And you even you use the word baton, which yeah. is such a good image because you think about like a relay race, right? It actually yeah. matters very little, the individual speed of one leg of that. That's because right. if you drop the baton, if the pass is yeah. flubbed, yeah. you're disqualified. Exactly. Like that's that's it. And I think exactly. so often it's easy to see ourselves just as the sprinter. Yes. And like, okay, great. Yeah, you were the fastest on the track. Way right. to go. And you pass the baton to no one. Or right. you dropped it or you held on to it way too long. There's actually like an exchange zone yes. in a baton pass. Yes. And if you hold on to it too long, you're disqualified. That's like, right. That idea, <clears throat> excuse me, even as a 36-year-old thinking about, oh, man. Who am I pouring into? Yeah. I, you know, I share on the show a lot about like mentors who have poured into me, yep. and I'm incredibly grateful for the men and women who have poured into me and been patient with me mm-hmm. when I didn't deserve the time of day. 
But to start thinking now, okay, yeah. who am I passing it off to? And right. for you to be 23 mm. and already thinking about that, yeah. to me, gives me so much hope mm-hmm. because as scrappy and cutting edge as what you're doing <laughs> is right now, yeah. eventually that will become the norm, exactly. right? The, the cutting edge thing will right. always become rope, will always become. And so I think it was Andy Stanley who said, we can either fight it or we can fund it. Yes. He said the, the next idea is not going to come from the previous generation. Right. So who are we pouring into? Right. And like you were saying earlier, not just with lip service, right. but actual like time and resources. How yeah. do we how do we do that better in the last kind of minute and a half that we yeah. have? How do we pour into and invest in building these bridges of passing the baton mm. well? I think we have to be connected at a personal level. Mm. So if we don't know anybody who's come before us and if we don't know who we're passing mm. this off to, we're not going to care. Right. I mean, totally. we've talked about this before. Proximity brings um, deep commitment. That's good. And so for me in my life, um, it can be really easy for me to say, I run a nonprofit that helps people. Right. And so I'm proximate enough. Oh, right, right. But for me, it's so important. I have mentors that I meet with on a consistent basis who are women who have done the hard work before. I was in one of my mentors' kitchens last week. And and I was asking her questions about leadership and about mm. being a woman. Mm. And so I am able to first off acknowledge the hard work she's done and learn from it and realize I, I'm not the first woman to deal with this. Right. I come in a long line of women who have done hard work. And then I also mentor um, a, a pretty big group of high school girls mm. because I want to know the women that I am fighting for. That's so good. I want to know that when I fight for what it looks like to be a young leader in this world, it's not just for me. It's for Loring. Yes. It's for Cassidy. Yes. It's for Bella and Mia and Anna and all my girls who I meet with and I want to, them to know I'm trying to build a better future for I them love that. too. I love that. Hannah, just personally, anecdotally, I'm so grateful for you and mm-hmm. your voice in the world. I think our world is a better place with you in it mm-hmm. and the work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be in studio with us in Brian's absence. You can learn more at hannahgranowski.com or at generationdistinct.com or womenspeakercollective.com. And Hannah, please, please come back and join us again sometime. Absolutely. Can't get me away. Thank you so much (laughs) for joining us. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and uh, because this is a Jesus show, I feel compelled to tell you Brian Fromm is not here. Let's just get the cards on the table. He's in Florida or New Mexico or somewhere not here. So we're calling this The Week of Ian's Friends, and uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, plus the show is podcasted. But I cannot tell you how excited I am to have in the flesh, in the studio, Dr. Warren Anderson. Doctor, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Ian. It is so good to be here with you. Just to let people know, first off, professionally, you're the director of the DeMoss Center for Worship and the Performing Arts at Judson University, my alma mater. Yes. But anecdotally, 
probably 60% of the time when I say, oh, a mentor once told me, uh, I'm talking about Warren Anderson. And uh, also, anecdotally, you might be one of my very favorite people to have breakfast with, just so that people understand the general vibe of what they're getting into here. Okay. Uh, I, I think, fair warning. <laughs> fair warning for everybody involved. There's not <laughs> breakfast now, but... Uh, about I, that. I, I, yeah, I should have. Yeah, <laughs> failure on my part, my goodness. <laughs> but I, I think you are truly one of the wisest, most gifted leaders and communicators of our time. And uh, like, honestly, I'm a better husband, father, and pastor because of your influence over the last decade and a half. So... Um, thank you for you and your heart and the way that you lead people so exceptionally well. And maybe you gathered by the title, but your field of expertise in particular is this big, massive category of worship, right? Which encompasses a lot of things, but you also have a blog that I, I find brilliant. You can find it at EmmausRoadWorshippers.com. And there's one in particular that you wrote that, because I'm wearing a cardigan right now, I have a particular affection for and the title is this, Worship Leading Lessons from Mr. Rogers. T- tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the documentary that was released a little while ago, I didn't see it in the theaters, but my wife and I went to uh, one of those red boxes and uh, brought it home. So good. And because we both were raised on Mr. Rogers and because I had read good reviews, we wanted to throw it in there. And... We watched this thing, and there were, of course, numerous moments of nostalgia that that were fabulous. Right. right. But I found myself two or three times tearing up Mm -hmm. at the intentional way that Fred Rogers structured his mission in life with the children. Yep. And because an area that I'm passionate about at this stage of my life over the last 10 years or so is worship and how mm. worship leaders serve the local churches. I just saw numerous areas mm. where what Rogers did on his show could be modified and adapted and used by contemporary worship leaders mm. to bring a sense of community to churches that sometimes, especially as they grow larger, feel less and less like like a home. Okay, so this is what you do. You always do this. You have these nuggets of truth that are such gold that I don't even know that you realize. Like what you just said about bringing a sense of community and worship leading, that for I think a lot of people might even be news to them. Like, oh, I thought the worship leader led the songs, right? They're the, they're the musician. Like, can you think of some specific ways— not only that maybe worship leaders do that, but Fred Rogers specifically like helped create and cultivate community through intentional action. Yeah, but let me just go back to one thing you said, because that could be a whole other show. <laughs> and that's the whole idea of contemporary worship leaders fulfilling some kind of pastoral role yeah, yes. as opposed to just being good musicians. That's right. There is much value, much value in worship leaders being good band leaders, knowing how to cue, knowing how to tell the drummer, no, two and four, two and four, (laughs) knowing how to say to the flute player a little bit shrill, pull that in a little bit. Mm. All of that's hugely important. And music is is very, very critical in contemporary worship. I'm not denigrating that. My gosh, my dad was a Ph.D. in music. Right. But. We lose if we focus all of our energy on that. Mm. 
we lose the very real possibility of worship leaders actually being worship leaders. Right, right. And not old school music directors like my dad was in the Mm. 50s and 60s and Mm. 70s. He wasn't trying to influence anybody and to connect the dots between what was the elements of the service so that people would be able to hear and understand and and experience a more uh, unifying and um, uh, aesthetically and intrinsically uh, united Hmm. experience. Hmm. He just wanted the music to sound good. Right. And and that's how he was trained. So so no, no big deal there. But worship leaders today have the potential to do some of the things that Rogers did. So here, here's one of them from the uh, observations that I had. His biographer said, A neighborhood was a place when you felt worried, scared, unsafe, that would take care of you, would provide understanding and mm. safety. That's what the neighborhood was for Fred. And if we substitute church for neighborhood, is our church a place of safety? Is mm. it a place where mm. when we feel worried, we can get comfort? Yeah. And is our worship leader, God help us, is our worship leader providing some of that safety, providing some of that comfort in what he or she says, in the songs that are chosen, in the connections between those songs? Mm. Or, as I find is often the case, are we simply singing a bunch of really, really good songs and there's nothing mm. evil about that? Right, right. There's nothing, and, and, and God uses that, mm. and God uses that. But could he use the Sunday morning worship set even more profoundly in the lives of his people if there was a little bit more thought behind connecting the dots and making it a, a, a uh, an organic experience mm. all the way from the opening to the closing? So, so why do you think the connecting of the dots thing is so rare and or difficult? Like I, we've talked about this extensively over coffee, over breakfast, but I, I think that um, you're particularly positioned to speak well to the why of some of these trends and, and you get it. Like I appreciate your even handedness. Like you're not, it's important to have good musicianship. It's not bad to sing good songs. Why, why do you feel though, that so many churches have trended toward simply the singing of good songs and if struggled to really think deeply about the cohesion of of the whole experience. It feels to me that that what I would want in a Sunday morning experience based on my training and my passions doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be the primary value mm. in most American contemporary worship services today. Mm. It feels like there are all kinds of values that are very important. Values like singing songs that people recognize, singing the hippest and most latest, Mm. making sure you've got something from Bethel on your uh, set list (laughs) or something from Hillsong United. Uh, Used to be you had to have a Tomlin in there and you had to have a Redman or as Aaron Equist used to say, his worship services that he was attending, three Tomlins and a Redman and you're good, you know. And it used to be that, but I think, honestly, I think it goes really deep. Mm. I think it goes to our insecurities about being the church Wow! and our insecurities that come from the top down Mm. and our insecurities about needing to be culturally relevant and needing to Mm. feel as if we have something to say. And so we look at the culture and we see what the dominant voices in the culture are. Right. And we say, we better have something like that in our church services. Wow. And that isn't the 
that isn't the least bit mm. countercultural. Mm. That is completely cultural. Right, right. And Jesus <laughs> was nothing if not countercultural. Yes, right, right. And so where are we following Jesus in that model, corporately and ecclesiastically speaking? Yes. I don't know that we are. Now, is it bad? No. Are people being blessed? Yes, of course. Is God glorified? Yes. Uh But when we are following so hard after what we think, Hmm. after what we see on YouTube, after (laughs) what the the record companies tell us we have to have because this is the cutting-edge worship stuff, and if you're not doing this, the implied message is... You're not with the program, mm. and people won't come to your church. They right. won't tithe. Your church is going to close. I mean, all the way down the line. Yep. And, and and even worse than that, that you are not in touch with what God is doing right now, right. so you better get on the bandwagon or you're going to be irrelevant, and none of us wants to be irrelevant. Yeah, right. Okay, so I have so many questions about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't even know. No, that's so good. Coming up next, I want to particularly ask you about the insecurities that you mentioned and some of our innate drive and desire to be relevant as the church. So that's coming up next with Dr. Warren Anderson of Judson University on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. If you joined us in the last segment, you know that's the new Tomlin tune. Uh, that we, it's not. <laughs> My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm, but he's in Florida, so we're calling this The Week of Ian's Friends, and uh, I'm so thrilled to have friend, brother, mentor, Dr. Warren Anderson, director of the DeMoss Center for Worship and the Performing Arts at Judson University, not on the phone, not via Skype, in flesh, in the studio, incarnate, right here. <laughs> in the house. In the house, my friends, talking about a topic that uh, I'm really passionate about, but you're both passionate and educated in, which is why I think we've always just really enjoyed each other. And and, and toward the end of the last segment, you were talking about this idea of uh, our insecurity as churches and how often it's our insecurity that can lead us to places organizationally, theologically, that aren't actually helpful and maybe don't look that much like Jesus. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of those insecurities and and where they lead us, particularly as it pertains to uh, worship and the worship experience? Yeah, and I think you go back and you you start with the seeker sensitivity movement. Uh And in doing so, my goodness, you give them all the props that that, um, should accompany a major shift hmm. that was born out of a desire to see people come to know the Lord. Right. No problems, no issues with the motivation hmm. at all. Hmm. And and the major churches uh, in our area who have been seeker-sensitive churches, you know, some of them have gone through some difficult times of late. Right. But there have been all kinds of voices who have stood up in the midst of that and said, yes, what happened here was very bad, but let's not discount yes. along the way the thousands, thousands right. of souls who are in the kingdom now who were not before, right. who found the Lord here. So, so we give props to the seeker sensitivity movement. At the same time, I think eventually we have to critique it a little bit for its abandoning of all things, jettisoning, jettisoning anything that hmm. smacked of traditional Christian church culture and worship Hmm. because we have thrown out 
the baby with the communion water, as it were, and <laughs> and we have been left with a a very exciting hmm. Sunday morning, a very technologically sophisticated Sunday morning, hmm. a very precisely timed and ordered with the producer in your ear saying the prayer has to end in five, four, three, in right, all of this. Right. And these things are not evil in and of themselves, but I really don't believe at the end of the day they help in a large-scale fashion hmm. parishioners who are there. Hmm. And so we, we, we abandon certain words in the titles. We change the names of our churches. We remove hmm. crosses from buildings. We no longer have choirs. We, we take away pew Bibles because they're up on the screen. Hmm. And, and all of it, it seems to me, in a well-intended, at one level, desire to make people feel comfortable. Yeah. But what we fail to understand in that, and I've used this example before, I think we give non-Christians very little credit for mm. having for having brains. Mm. If a non-Christian stumbles into a building with a steeple on its roof... Right a building that has the name church in its title, (laughs) isn't it likely (laughs) that that non-believer expects Uh, there to be something churchy about the experience and is not looking Mm. for all the bells and whistles that he or she can find on Netflix or at the bar or mm. at a light show or laser tag or mm. whatever, mm. <laughs> I think an unbeliever walks into that church saying, God help me, I know all about my culture. I don't want something that caters to that culture. Mm. I want something that transcends that culture. Wow. wow. Now, they won't use that language, of R- course, right. but in their souls, that's what they're looking for. And if they've got... Freshly brewed coffee, great. That's fine, fine. If the singing is good, great. But what they're looking for is the kind of experience that will transform their lives, Mm -hmm. that will help them realize what they don't have, because they know what they don't have. If they've gotten to the point where they're walking in there, they know that. They might not be able to articulate it as theologically beautifully as as (laughs) those of us with degrees would do, (laughs) but they know. Yeah. And why do we think we have to entertain them Hmm. when what they want is a healing balm that, quite frankly, doesn't always come with a bunch of upbeat music and a slickly produced video and a 45-minute sermon and everything that comes as part of most of our contemporary worship these days. Which would then sometimes include things like lament, I imagine, or dare I say, silence, or some of what I often find in my tradition that we buck against anything that reeks of quote unquote tradition or liturgy, right? Sometimes those things can be so demonized. And I imagine just listening to you, uh, we probably have audiences on either side of a reaction right now. Some are standing up and cheering in their chairs. And if you're driving, please don't do that. But they're hearing more and they're saying, yes, absolutely. I imagine other people are hearing this thinking, what the heck is he talking about? I've never heard anyone go after those types of things with that kind of fervor. Like, what would you say to the people looking for a way forward, like, okay, um, I'm maybe somewhere in the middle. I've never thought deeply about 
how we order our service or what Boom. I'm even looking for. Yeah. Start there. Start by thinking Start deeply. Start by thinking <laughs> deeply, please. <laughs> Start there. Go get education if you mm. have if you have the opportunity to do so. Hmm. Go if you can't pony up for a master's degree or a doctor's degree, go to any number of worship conferences that mm. are ubiquitous. Worship Leader does one. Lifeway uh, Worship does one. Mm. Um, Sovereign Grace does one. There are all kinds of go. Just go. So you're not a worship leader. You're not a musician. But you want to know more about worship, go. Hmm. Get more education. Read books. Read Bob Weber. Uh, He's got 800 books out there. Pick one. Any of them will be great. Yes. Get some more information. And then help those in your leadership understand how desperately important it is that there are specific reasons for everything that you do Mm. on Sunday morning Mm. and be intentional about them and be intentional about leaving things out in order to let other things Stay in. Oh, that's good. Silence is a great example. Good grief. We are so frenetically paced in our average church service. <laughs> if the Lord wanted to speak to us, he couldn't because we got so much going on. We crossfade everything into everything Every, else, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Put the Lord in. Cue him up slowly. Okay. Very good. You know, I mean, he comes in with the fog, I think, is that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's that kind of thing. I just think we get, and, and, and we, no one means evil by this. Not at all. Nobody Not at means all. to do something, but what we end up with is an experience that, boy, tickles our senses and, and, and keeps us entertained. But, at a very significant level, I think, mm. often, not always, mm. but often, misses heart connections mm. that could happen if we were just thinking a little bit more strategically about what Sunday morning might look like. Are you sure that you're not a preacher? I yeah, feel, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I feel like Dr. Warren Anderson just took us to church. All right, well, coming up next, I want to talk about, um, I'm going to call this the Nickelback effect. Why, why so much of our contemporary worship songs sound <laughs> so much alike, this, uh, this pattern and structure that uh, we so easily fall into, and, and see if maybe there isn't some layers beneath why we keep seeing that happen, and maybe a way forward, both as a Little C and Big C Church. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is MIA. He's somewhere. We haven't heard from him. If you've seen him, give us a call. Uh, We're worried. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You go to 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. Had friends tell me they listen at twice the speed. So if that's your jam, go for it. But we have in the studio my brilliant friend, Dr. Warren Anderson, who is the director of the DeMoss Center for Worship and the Performing Arts at my alma mater, Judson University. But not only is he that, he's just a friend, a mentor, someone who thinks deeply about the local church and more specifically about worship. Uh, He also at least used to teach a class on rock and roll. Anybody who's engaged in the worship conversation and can still teach a class on rock and roll is the kind of friend that I want. But we were were talking a little bit before the break about um, some of the sort of copy and paste mentality of the church and you mentioned it sort of in the in the frame of the insecurity of the local church that some of our our draw sometimes our obsessive draw to be relevant to be entertaining you know and i recently heard someone say that entertainment is a parody for joy it's it's not quite the same and yet we kind of settle for it and you talk about it more specifically in your blog and if you want to read more about it uh, i can't encourage you enough it's emmausroadworshippers.com um, but you have a specific blog dedicated to this idea of 
the really predictable chord structure of most contemporary worship music. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's uh, heart and soul. It's the same four chords that every six-year-old in the world <laughs> who has access to a piano learns eventually, hmm. and then with a buddy does um, both parts of it. <laughs> By the way, just a shout-out to my dad. I was never more impressed. Uh, I was never more proud of my dad than when he sat down after I had done that with a friend and actually played both parts at the same time. I thought, oh, my goodness, I have a genius for a father. He's arrived, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, in layman's terms, in Nashville Number Systems terms, it's one, four, five, and six. Hmm. One is tonic, uh, four is uh, subdominant, five is dominant. And those three um, predominate. And then we throw the six minor chord in there. And and let me just preface all this by saying here again, is this evil? No, hmm. no. Are people worshiping and passionately to songs that have what I consider to be a ridiculously boring harmonic structure? <laughs> yes, they are. It's good. Yeah. And, and, and there is, certainly is an end justifying the means component here. Hmm. As we look at the worship renewal movement uh, in the 70s, there were some horrendous hymns that were written, just <laughs> horrible, not singable hmm. harmonic structure, and yet they made it into our denominational hymnals, and that alone would have propelled anybody to start writing something that has to be a little easier to sing, <laughs> but I think we have swung the pendulum way too far over. So, so what is the big deal about this? The big deal is that I think what happens is, again— we want to sound like Bethel. Hmm. We want to sound like Hillsong United because they are the ones uh, and others, uh, and it'll be somebody else in 10 years, but right, who, right. whoever the hip, the hip worshiping community is. And we want to mimic that because hmm. they have had some success Yes, right. as the world defines success. And even, I think, to be fair, as God would define success. Uh-huh. But in doing so, we negate the truth that God has a specific word for each worshiping community, Mm. and it does not have to sound like the word that he has given someone else. That's right. And it also, and I don't want to call out songwriters here too too fiercely, (laughs) but it's lazy Mm. to go to those same chords because they feel good Mm. and because they work and because... Tomlin used them on How Great Is Our God, which is a great song that my choir sings at the end of every single concert. So I'm not blasting the concept in total. In Mm. fact, in this year, I checked, just to be sure, in our Judson University choir concerts this year, I am doing three songs. Count Mm. them. Count them. Three songs (laughs) with the ubiquitous one, four, five, six chord structure. But we sing 15 songs. So Right, right. 20% of the congregational and and choral worship comes from that. I can handle 20%. Hmm. But when it's 80% of the songs that are doing that, then as a musician, as someone who wants to study to show myself approved, who's someone who wants to encourage my students to use the gifts they've given, that God has given them to expand their horizons, Hmm. I want something different. Hmm. I want something more. I want a flat three chord. I want a flat seven chord. I want a three minor. I want a two minor. I want a four minor. How dare you? Uh, (laughs) 
You've gone too far, sir. If <laughs> if the same thing is true that God cannot be, and I I believe this, I'll believe this till the cows come home. God cannot be adequately represented in any one style or genre of music. Right. Amen. A mighty fortress is our God. Don't bother me with that if you're not going to put it on a pipe organ. I mean, I, I, I don't need I don't need a praise band version of a mighty fortresses of God. Forget it. Pipe organ or nothing. And, and then there are if you're going to try to play, I'll fly away, and mm-hmm. don't have an acoustic string band. Don't bring me that. <laughs> That's just that song needs. And and there are some songs. You know, uh, Living Hope needs a contemporary praise band. I get it. Right, right, right. That's a great song. Right. And we used that uh, in the choir this year, and people, oh my gosh, great worshiping experience. Hmm. But if every blessed song has that same pattern, which, go, this is getting a little psychological now, those patterns evoke in us certain things, Hmm. and we get connotations then that come around that. Hmm. If everything is like that, where is there space to talk about God who is the judge? Hmm. Where is there space to talk about the God who occasionally acts in ways that we don't understand or even like? Right, right. What do we do with that? Hmm. Do we ignore that in corporate worship? Do we ignore certain things? Do we only take those psalms, if we're looking at the Psalter, only take those songs that are, yeah, praise God, I'm on the mountain, it's great. Do we avoid the laments? Of course, mm. most of us do. Right. But, you know, it just it seems as if by limiting ourselves to this predictable chord pattern, we are diminishing what God could do through mm. congregational singing. Yeah, right. Okay, so that makes me think of an experience, actually, when I was at Judson, and this was one of the most profound pieces of feedback I ever got playing music. It was from you, and uh, we, we led uh, a worship set for chapel, and I, I came off the stage, and if I remember correctly, I may be over-dramatizing in my memory, but you had a, like a tear in your eye, and you gave me this, this big bear hug, and you said, thank you. Whatever you just did up there made me forget that you were there entirely. And as a drummer, it was like a light bulb moment for me. It was like, that's what I want. I want to, I want to disappear mm-hmm. whenever I'm in a position to lead people in worship. And I have heard people make the case for a predictable chord structure. It helps... It helps remove any possible distractions from from the community at large because it's really it's really easy to follow and it's a key that's really easy for everyone. How do you how do you kind of balance those things with like intelligent, thoughtful engagement of music creation, like and, and engaging with the excellence of the craft with also this needs to be singable to some degree and yeah. to usher people into something. And that's a fabulous question and very fair. I think my response to that is you can get the desired dynamic Hmm. in other ways. Hmm. Let me give a shout-out to uh, one of my good buddies and a wonderful songwriter and worship um, theologian, Rory Noland. Yes, brilliant. His song that he wrote with Greg Ferguson, He Is Able, Mm -hmm. is as singable as any 1465 or 41. Six five, or five one six four. Yeah, you know they're all cousins. Right, uh, right. He is able with nine, count them nine chords. Wow, wow. in a thirty-two bar song hmm. is as singable as anything, and yet it is not the least bit predictable. Hmm. And yet you hear it once and you can sing it. Wow, I get it. I get it. Those those chords do lend a sense of 
of uh, familiarity and ease of singing. But I think too many of us stop there and say, well, that's the case. That helps them worship. Done. Right. End of discussion. End of discussion. Right. And I'm 25 years old and I'm a songwriter. <laughs> And the Lord's not going to reveal to me anything <laughs> of any substance in the next 40 years right. that would cause me to deviate from A, <laughs> F sharp minor, D, yes. E, A. That's really good. That's pathetic. Hmm. I, I just don't think that's the case. And, and I think because the end is so important, we do want people to worship. Absolutely. Passionately. Absolutely. But I think we can get there in a number of ways that we're not exploring right now because it takes a little extra work. Yes. Okay. That is so endlessly fascinating to me. And I think that actually ties really well to what I want to talk about next, because you're talking about some of the unpredictability of worship. And so often our Sunday expressions is anything but unpredictable. How, how do we actually create space in our Sunday gatherings for lament, for tragedy, particularly when it comes to local tragedy? How, how should churches and church leaders think about real-time events that happening that are happening in and around their community. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is somewhere. We're not, we're not entirely sure. But this is a show hopefully designed to create space to dialogue about stuff that doesn't have easy answers, stuff that sometimes exists in the gray, and we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com, but I am thrilled to have friend, mentor, professor, educator, prophet, preacher. Any other titles you want me to throw in there? No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Dr. Warren Anderson, the director of the DeMoss Center for Worship and the Performing Arts at my alma mater, Judson University. And uh, Warren, I love that you've been writing in this blog that you created. It's called Emmaus Road Worshippers. Uh, can't encourage you enough to go find that. But the, the headline of this particular post that you shared um, just rings true for me in so many ways. It's called Adjusting Your Worship Set in Light of Local Tragedy. And uh, I'd love for you just to kind of walk us through that a little bit, kind of give us some some pastoral wisdom in light of that. Yeah, I, I think there are some wonderful things about how we do uh, the typical contemporary worship service these days and planning center, which is the planning software of choice has all kinds of wonderful things, all kinds of helps. And we're planning services um, further and further in advance, which is great. Holy spirit is absolutely at work in the planning as he is on that morning. But I think what, what we need to do when we have a situation like the one that we had here in Aurora several weeks ago, hmm. when we come to a situation like that, the first Sunday after that, we have got to address it. Hmm. We become so numb as a culture to these things because, God help us, they are happening all the time. Right, right. And it's very easy to say, oh, another one, mm. oh, another one. Mm. And, and we can't do that. We can't be numb to that. And so uh, in this blog, I just wrote three things that, that you shouldn't do. Mm. There are all kinds of things you can do. And one of the things is simply not to ignore mm. the tragedy. Mm. And uh, I like what Karl Barth said uh, regarding uh, preaching, that preachers should prepare with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Yes. And I think that serves worship leaders particularly well uh, in addition. So mm. that would be the first thing. Just don't ignore it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. And then number two, and this is probably um, probably the, the area that is most difficult, 
don't be afraid to go off script. Hmm. There would be every reason in the world for Fox Valley area residents here to have abandoned whatever was being uh, planned for the sermon and to just focus on tragedy at that point. Hmm. It would be perfectly appropriate for the worship leaders to say, there's no way we can sing an upbeat, peppy song like this. Right. Absolutely inappropriate. Hmm. Um, there, there would be reasons to, to radically change the, the format of what you're doing on that Sunday. Hmm. Now, those are hard. Those are not easy. They require extra time. They require prayer. Right. Right. They require uh, a, a boatload of changes, and none of those is easy. I get that. Right. But it's not inappropriate to do. Hmm. For instance, 11 years prior to this, uh, there was a horrible shooting in northern Illinois, Northern Illinois University, and I had a member of my worship team whose daughter was in the classroom mm. when the guy opened fire. Oh, my gosh. And she had to crawl out, as did everybody else in that lecture hall, uh, the ones who survived, crawl to safety. And that happened, and then that weekend, that brother was, was on the team, and it was like, no, I am not going to go open up with, this is amazing, Grace. Right, you know, right. I mean, that, absolutely not. Wow. And so we we changed the service. It took a lot of effort, but we did it. Mm. I scaled back the praise team, did some stuff from piano alone. We opened up with Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. And tried to talk about those kinds of things yeah. a little bit. And then the third point would be, I guess, not to sugarcoat the tough stuff and to wrestle with it. That's so good. And I've got a, a real strong case in point. And again, before I, I, I say this, I just worship leading is a hard job. The yeah. enemy hates worship leaders. The enemy mm. wants worship leaders to fail. Yeah. I did weekend warrior worship leading for 30 years. I know how hard it is, so mm. I'm not blasting this guy. By the same token, I'm trying to call him and anyone else to a higher standard. Mm. And the day after the horrible synagogue shooting in uh, Pennsylvania, a friend of mine sent me a, a clip of a worship service mm. where the worship leader started out with uh, The Lion and the Lamb. A great, upbeat song. It was sung well. The congregation was participating beautifully. And, of course, the, the, the key line in that song, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Hmm. And as I watched that, I thought for a second, oh, my gosh, he's not going to mention Pittsburgh at all. Hmm. We're just going to sing this triumphal song and move right on to something else. Right. Well, thankfully, my fears were alleviated. He did mention it, and he went into a prayer hmm. for Pittsburgh. That, that was heartfelt. Yeah. But as I sat there watching, I thought, holy cow, what a missed opportunity to bring some theological depth to this to this situation. Right, right. Because it would be very, very appropriate to say, okay, we have just sung, Who Can Stop the Lord Almighty? Hmm. Well, there are some families in Pittsburgh right now yeah, right. that would say, well, it sure looks like a guy with an AR-15 can and did. Wow, wow. Now, what do we do with that? Yeah. 
does that kind of thinking not belong in our worship services? Mm. I would argue it absolutely belongs in our worship services. And I would argue that at that point, the worship leader, if he had been a little bit more thinking about how to make those transitions, could have said, look, this is above my pay grade, theologically speaking. This is something that I Mm. defy any of you to have a great answer for. Mm. Because there are some things in life that are just going to be the kinds of things that we say, we have a sovereign God, we do not understand we say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's it. That's the best we got. Yes, right. And to search for something better, to search for platitudes, to search for comfort there, does little help. Hmm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't wrestle with it. Yes. And in worship of all places. And what do you do after that? I don't know. You sing it as well with my soul, maybe. Yeah. And you cry out. With the guy who lost his family overseas uh, yes. on the ship, you know, yes. and you do that and you say, okay, this is part of a larger tragedy. And then maybe you end up with a song that says, praise God, there is a better day coming. I will rise when they call my name. There'll be no more sorrow. Yeah. There'll be no more pain. Right. And you end there. Yep. But you address it. That's right. Don't ignore it. See, Warren, this is what I've always so loved and appreciated about you. That That challenge. It's not just to worship pastors, not just to church folk, not just to church leaders or pastors, but for all of us to not sugarcoat the tough stuff, but to wrestle with it, to lean in, right? To say at times, I don't have an answer for this. I don't have a verse to prescribe to you, but I'm with you in this. I think that, and I think you would agree, is when the church is at its best. Yeah, absolutely. When we say with tears in our eyes, when we, when we can actually feel the pain and heartache of those around us say, Come hell or high water, we're in this together. You're not alone. Yeah. And that, to me, is such an important call. And that's something that you've called me to for the last 15 years. And I'm so grateful for your friendship, for your wisdom, for your instruction, for your mentorship. I am so grateful for the next 15. And I hope that you'll agree to come back on the show sometime. Anytime. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Warren Anderson from Judson University. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.